New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today I'm hosting Peter Coyote, actor and Zen priest and author of The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha. I'm speaking with Peter at his home by remote connection. Welcome, Peter, to the New Dimensions Cafe. Woven through your new book is a lighthearted parable of an overweight and out-of-work Lone Ranger and Tonto who meet Buddha and experience spiritual awakening. It's interesting that you picked the masked man, the Lone Ranger, because in these days of the coronavirus pandemic, most of us are wearing masks. You've conceived and conduct mass workshops. Please help us understand how your mass workshops help us to release our normal way of being with all our attachments and habits. The problem is, you know, we all have an ego. It's not a villain. It would never have survived evolution if it didn't, you know, save us from dinosaurs and teaches us to cross on the green and brush our teeth and take care of us. But the problem is, as life goes on, We begin to be told who we are by our parents. We begin to assume who we are by the way people treat us. We imply who we are. And after a while, that that sense gets so laden with the idea that it's a fixed thing, like an armature inside a sculpture, that our freedom is diminished because we, we think, well, I don't do that or I don't do this. Well, the world is changing all the time. And if you're not changing with it, you're creating little prisons for yourself to be in. And the only thing that you can really make unchangeable is your intention. And so as Buddhists, we work on making our intention to be compassionate fixed with the force of a habit. And then we can improvise and not worry that we're going to be leaking envy or competition or jealousy or that kind of stuff. So once I understood that there was a kind of dialogue between Buddhist practice and acting practice and the states of mind that meditation would provide, I began developing this. I've been doing it for over 40 years, and I kind of know what I'm doing by now. I'm just wondering about going back to the thought of meditation and what it's all about, and people are pursuing uh rather than kindness and compassion we're we're pursuing enlightenment that's a big mistake yeah well tell us about that please so on the one hand this self that we think of as very separate is not separate at all and the image that i like to give people is imagine you were standing on a cliff and looking at a very choppy ocean millions of little wavelets rising and falling not big rollers Well, every one of those waves could be a nameable thing in the universe, could be a person, could be a dolphin, could be a mountain range, could be a feeling. It's all the same. It comes out of the vast formlessness of the ocean. 
That's what emptiness is. The vast formlessness of the ocean, and it comes up into form for a while, and then it goes back to the ocean. And we call it, when it's in form, we call it living. And when it falls back to the ocean, we call it dying. But in fact, what the waves forget and what we forget is they've never not been part of the ocean. We have never not been part of the universe for 10 seconds. And so once you realize that, and once you realize you have absolutely equal standing with all of creation, you can't be diminished. I may not like the fact that Donald Trump is made of the same thing that I am, but it's an unavoidable uh, conclusion and it eradicates any idea of self-judgment. So all I can do is understand that he's a person, he's had different experiences that I have, try to understand them, try to protect myself from his behavior and other people from his behavior. But the idea that I'm better is like a piece of, you know, dog turd lording it over a piece of cat turd. I mean, we're just all made by the same thing. There's some concept that is hard to grasp for many of us, and, and it continues to be a little hard to grasp for me. Uh, the Buddhist talks about dependent origination. Yeah, sounds like a big word. Here it is. No apple tree, no apples. No sunlight, no apples. No water, no apple tree. No sunlight, no justine. No oxygen, no justine. You can even take it to the Earth's place in the solar system. If we were closer to the sun, water would burn off. We wouldn't be here. If we were farther away, it would freeze. We wouldn't be here. And the Earth is being held where it is by all the gravitational forces of the universe. So we are not separate from any of it. And this is one of the things that people fail to understand when they think about uh, ecology and evolution. Listen to this. A squirrel has a little pouch in its stomach. And it eats a mushroom in the forest. And that little pouch gets filled with bacteria. When the squirrel poops, its poop is covered with that bacteria. And when a redwood seed sprouts, Unless it touches a piece of squirrel poop and gets colonized by those bacteria, it can't digest the nutrients of the earth. So these gigantic trees are completely dependent on these little microbes. So anything we spray in the forest that is enough to kill these little microbes or kill the mushrooms ends redwood trees. So you know that our policymakers who are allowing us to dump garbage in the ocean and 100,000 chemicals into the atmosphere every year are not aware of any of this stuff. They're just not nuanced enough or smart enough. They're just thinking about business and what's good for business and what's not. Dependent origination means that it all comes into existence together. Buddhism has a I would describe it as a long tail, that it's been around for a long time, and it's not really considered in its true form a religion. That's right. Can you say something about that? Sure. It's very important to understand that Buddha was an ordinary man. He was a prince. His father was a king of a the ruler of a Shakya tribe in Nepal. 
but he was a man and he became obsessed with the problem of suffering on earth and he dedicated himself to dealing with it and he was the first person sort of on record who enlightened himself who sat and worked his way through all the perceptions of being human and all the parts and he was the one that coined this phrase of emptiness meaning empty of a fixed self it's not denying the existence of anything but if there's no self like an acorn tucked under your liver what is it that gets reincarnated in fact we are like a little wavelet that's coming up we exist for a while then we go back to emptiness of the formless ocean and we're recombinated but it's not like our personality hops from body to body because you never meet anybody that wasn't royalty or a prince or a great healer or teacher in the past. And that was just a way of kind of keeping the ego afloat because the ego doesn't want to think of itself as impermanent. The ego thinks of itself as the most important thing on earth. But when you really understand that you're just like an empty bamboo tube, it's like you can let go of a whole lot of stuff. You don't have to worry about too much. So Buddhism is not a religion. When we, when we bow to Buddha, we are expressing gratitude for his teaching. We are not revering him as holy. Now, there are some cultures in which he is kind of elevated to the position of a god or magical. And as I'm fond of saying, the problem with Buddhism is that there's people in it. <laughs> and over time, like just like enlightenment, Enlightenment was kind of a beginning for Buddha. Now, enlightenment is often imagined as something that's going to take you many, many lifetimes to accrue, or other people have other definitions of it, and you have many sects of Buddhism. You know, so multiple flowers, multiple schools contend. But I like Zen because it was the least intellectual, least scholarly, most immediate. And when you choose a discipline, you have to stop flitting around. You can't do a little Zen and a little Vipassana and then a little palm leaf reading in India and then a little hugging with the guru. You have to, if you want depth, you have to commit. Otherwise, you're just kind of like a water strider. We're talking about Buddhism not as a religion, but it's a practice. And I'm thinking about the distinction between engaging one's thoughts and observing the mind. And is, is this partly what meditation is about? Meditation gives you a confidence in the strength of the body and the safety of that posture to perceive things you're normally blocked from consciousness. So if you think about it, the Buddha gave us four noble truths. He called them noble truths. So truth means, first of all, real. The very first one in Sanskrit that's translated as suffering, but the better word is affliction. And what it means is that all existence sits in a peppery wind. Just it's hard to be alive. And we're being assaulted by light, by heat, by various things that are coming up. It's not our fault. It's not neurotic. He tells you it's a noble truth. Noble means worthy of respect, means, you know, dignified. 
So the second thing that comes up when you're afflicted by stuff is called samudaya, and it means arising. So when you get afflicted, when somebody shouts at you, something arises in your mind. That's not your fault either. It just comes up. It's like when the fire is too hot, you move away from it. It's energy that moves us around in life. Now, the third one is called neuroda. And what it means is containment. And any peasant would have understood this. It's like a clay wall built around a fire pit that stops the ash of the fire from going and burning down the village or burning down the crops. And so within the safety of meditation and within the repeated habit of meditation, we learn that we can contain whatever comes up. And he's showing us how to live a life of humanity with dignity, because there's nothing dignified about running to a bar and getting loaded. There's nothing dignified about cheating and having illicit affairs and lying to your wife and children or your husband and children. There's nothing dignified about shopping too much or gambling or drinking or whatever it may be. So the Buddha teaches you that you can contain what comes up. And the last is called Marga, and it's the Eightfold Path. And he says, if you live this way, with right speech, right attention, right livelihood, you will not be generating negative karma. And you will be modeling the life of a Buddha on earth. Other people will see it, and you will be able to help them. That was his first teaching after his enlightenment. It was bone simple. It was affliction arising, containment, and the Eightfold Path. And what he wanted to do was enlist people into this global vision of saving humanity from its fruitless efforts to run away from suffering and consequently create more suffering. Greed, attachment to property, attachment to status. So he let everyone in. All the taboos were not accepted. There were women, there were men, there were untouchables. There was everything. You know, as time goes on, people refine it, they emphasize different things, and you can lose track. And what engaged Buddhism is, is looking at the world and saying, wait a minute, that guy doesn't have a bowl of rice. How is he going to meditate? That woman doesn't have food for her children. How is she going to meditate? These people are trying to overthrow our elections. What's going to happen to our citizens? This radio station is lying. This television station is not telling. So you realize that the world we live in, which is an expression of all these undignified, acquisitive, greedy, angry, and envious human impulses, we can model the life of a Buddha in it. And we can show people what it's like how to live with dignity and beauty, and they copy us. And now there are millions of Buddhists in America. So I'm thinking also in this way of engaged Buddhism, what would you say about how can we then engage with the Four Noble Truths, which lead to the Eightfold Path, which you have mentioned? How can we engage in that by rather than being overwhelmed, working with what is close to us and saying, that's a good and right thing to do? Good question. That's a really good question. So look, the first thing is, when you learn to detach from your thoughts, you can just let the mind be the mind. 
I don't know if you know how to drive a stick shift car, but when you put the clutch in, you can race the engine all you want. Nothing happens. So when you're meditating, it's like the clutch is in and your mind can go wherever it wants, but your attention is on your posture, your mudra, your breathing, and gradually the mind slows down on its own. You can't stop it, but it will slow down because you're not feeding it impulses. So when you say to me, I'm overwhelmed by all this stuff that's going on, that means you're attaching to all the thoughts and worries in your mind. And they're just, you're just running like leaves blowing in the wind. So pick something that you can do. You can't fix global warming. I mean, I've got all, I drive a Tesla, which I charge with solar cells. I've got all LEDs. It's not enough. It's not nearly enough. So you do what you can. And one of the things that I can do is I can teach people the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And if they like the way that my life appears to them, and if they like the way that I appear, they might want to model that. And so you have to realize that we're not as omnipotent as we feel. I would rather make sandwiches for the homeless than give a speech to 10,000 people about homelessness or feeding the poor, because you can model making a sandwich. You see me making a sandwich, you can do it. You can take five sandwiches out every day and give them to people in your neighborhood. Okay. And if you do that, other people are going to see it. Or if you give blankets or old socks or warm clothes. So you have to kind of check into your intuitions, see what really moves you and realize how little you can do in a single life, but how much it can actually do also. When you think of a Martin Luther King, when you think of, uh, you know, people who have just been true to themselves and pursued a path without stopping. Thank you, Peter, for being part of the New Dimensions Cafe today. I've been speaking with Peter Coyote, author of The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha. To find out more about his work, go to petercoyote.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe. I invite you, please join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.